Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Pacini, represented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, we're going to do kind of a... This is going to be the first part of a two-part podcast. The first episode is going to be about uh, the NBA teams and whether or not we believe in them. It's basically a time for takes, a time for uh, three weeks of basketball and deciding whether or not we think teams are actually for real or not. Uh, And... We're just going to kind of roll with it. And then the second part, which will be a second podcast uh, that probably comes out on Friday morning, we will do a uh, college prospects breakdown in terms of are these guys for real? I also need to talk to Cole about LaMelo Ball, I think, uh, as well, because LaMelo finally, I think, made good on what Cole is so excited about. So, Cole, how are you doing, man? It's good to chat with you. You were uh, you were in Portland last night. I was. I made the uh, day trip down from Seattle to Portland for the PK Invitational. Last night, of course, we had Memphis, Oregon, and then Oregon State, Oklahoma. Wish Trey Young was still there. That would have been a much more compelling second game, but a fun trip. It's never fun to drive <laughs> like six and a half hours in one day or whatnot, but I thought it was worth it. Yeah, anytime you can see those guys, I think it's worth it. Uh, I was planning on coming up for that, and then kind of a the funky shit with James Wiseman's eligibility stuff threw me off so we ended up deciding not to make that trek up just because I wasn't sure if it'd be worth it if Wiseman wasn't playing he played he was uh, he played a half at least I didn't play much of the first half unfortunately but we'll talk about that in the second half of the podcast the first half of this um, podcast here and really the entirety of this podcast is going to be on NBA teams and if we think they are for real or not we're going to talk about the Knicks Lakers Cavs uh, Phoenix Suns Boston Celtics Indiana Pacers Philadelphia 76ers and Portland Trailblazers uh, and just kind of decide whether or not we think what they've shown so far is legit or if it is kind of smoke and mirrors from this season being what three and a half weeks old now something like that uh Before we get going here, Manscaped is our sponsor today. We'll hit you with them uh, in about half an hour here. But Cole, let's, uh, I'll just give you the floor. What team do you want to start with out of the teams that I just mentioned? I think for me, honestly, Phoenix Suns are the most interesting, just based on expectations. A company at least man personally. through and through. <laughs> well, you came into the season, it was like, who is the bottom who's in the cellar of the West? We knew it was going to be Memphis, at least a lot of us did. And then that next little group of tier, it was like Minnesota, Phoenix. Maybe you can talk yourself into some other teams, New Orleans, for example. But I definitely thought that Phoenix was in that tier, and they have outperformed that pretty substantially thus far. So what do you like about what you've seen from Phoenix? I think that... uh... For me, the biggest thing is the defensive improvement. I know that they're fifth in offensive rating right now, but the fact that they look a lot more competent on the defensive side of the floor is really important. Absolutely. And I think a lot of this is Aaron Baines. And this is not a knock on Aiton. Not doesn't even have anything to do with Aiton. But how well Baines has played this year, he's been legit awesome for them. Yeah. Like, not just offensively with the above the break threes and the screening, but defensively, the communication, the toughness that he's added to their team. They just have smarter players this year in the rotation. Getting Rubio, that kind of established veteran, just makes the right read, makes good defensive decisions. And you start compiling all these factors together. You get Sarich as your starting four, who, of course, has his defensive limitations, but still a very high IQ player. So you're seeing that throughout the rotation. Is just they have more NBA guys. And 
a lot of them have good basketball intelligence and they're getting great performances. Booker has been incredibly efficient this year. Um, and I think they're putting him in better positions to succeed with a guy like Rubio setting him up and Bain setting awesome screens for him. So I, they've kind of blown me away as far as do I think they're a playoff team? I'm not quite there yet. But what I wanted to see from them this year is can you compete consistently night in and night out? And they're doing that. Yeah, totally agree. Uh you mentioned the idea that they have brought in competent players. Like you and I talked in the preseason about the fact that, you know, Ricky Rubio was going to be a huge, huge boon for them just because even going from like, even if you consider Ricky Rubio, you know, a zero sum player as a starting point guard in the NBA, I don't, I think he's probably like, you know, maybe a plus if we're doing it by war, like maybe he's like a plus one or a plus two war guy. He's like a solid starter. But they were getting the worst production in the league last year from the point guard position. And now they have a guy in Ricky Rubio who comes in and just knows how to make smart decisions and knows how to make right decisions and knows how to get the team going on the break, knows how to get them into their sets efficiently. He's just a really, really smart player that fits really well with what Devin Booker can do. Uh, I did have like a small concern about, okay, Devin likes to play on the ball a lot. And what do you do with Ricky whenever Devin is playing and initiating the set? That hasn't been as much of a concern as what I thought it would be. It's not great necessarily. Like teams aren't sitting here going, oh, we have to guard Ricky Rubio from three, but Ricky's hit 40% of his threes. Um, You know, in large part, he's been pretty solid there. And uh, he's done just such an excellent job of putting guys in position to succeed. And you mentioned the fact that uh, Aaron Baines has been the difference maker here. I totally agree with you. I do just want to say though, like you mentioned that you thought it was Aaron Baines on defense specifically. I'm... I'm not going to say Aaron Baines isn't a good defender. He is. He's really, really helped them. I think it's even more of just a systemic cultural thing than anything else. Because in that first game we saw, you know, what we talked about on the podcast right after was that was DeAndre Ayton's like best performance of his career, we thought, in large part because he was really solid defensively. I think that what Monty Williams is doing so far is he's doing just a really, really good job of getting that team to focus in on that end of the floor, making sure that everyone is communicating, as you mentioned. And Baines helps that. But I think that they're just a lot tighter in terms of their rotations, even when Baines is off the floor. Yeah, no, no question. That comes again from added experience, like Tyler Johnson being the backup point guard now. Like Javon Carter gave them some okay minutes, but I think he was still kind of a wild card to start the year. He's he would heat up the ball at times, have some good stints there, made some good reads, but I don't think he was necessarily like a great rotation player. And now it's mostly Tyler Johnson. And I think they can maybe stagger Rubio and Booker a little bit better. That would be maybe my one criticism based on the games that I've watched. I haven't seen all of them, of course. I just, again, like having that foundation, having something that's solid on your team. And I think that's what Baines gives them defensively. It's just a communicator, a guy who's really physical, really tough, knows where to be. And offensively, he's just been incredibly good. I mean, do I expect him and Rubio to keep shooting as well from three as they have? I don't think so. It's got to regress some based on career averages and whatnot. Bain's ability to knock down pick and pop above the break threes this year has just been absolutely ridiculous. Like he's he's knocking them down at an incredible rate. And we've talked about on the podcast before how valuable that is for fives to have that kind of stretch gravity. And he's starting to get a little bit more gravity, not just an execution shooter. So I, I think right now there's a lot of things that are going very well for them. The key thing for me, again, is just their intelligence on the floor. When they're playing their best basketball, they're playing good team basketball basketball they're making good cuts McHale's played really well off of Rubio and kind of that element and they're really passing the ball they've been a really good passing team this year in the games that I've seen and that's really critical for them 
So I, I will ask the question, uh, is Phoenix for real? Uh, just full on, right? Like we can, this is just how we'll end each section for each team. Is Are the Phoenix Suns for real based off of what they've done so far? And what they've done so far, they're running up a plus 5.9 net rating and are six and four. So, you know, you extrapolate that out, 60% winning percentage, that gets you what, around like 46 wins, something in that range. Uh, do we think this team is for real? Or do we think that they're going to fall back down to earth at the end of the day? It depends on what we define real and fall back down to earth. I think they're much better than I expected coming this year. I think they're competitive. So in that respect, I think they're real. Are they a playoff team? I don't think so. I I think they're more just on the outside looking in. But as far as real relative to expectations coming into the season, absolutely. Yeah, in terms of expectations, they are much better than expectations. And I think that that part of it is absolutely real. Uh, One thing that I will flag is what you mentioned. I don't even think it's just Rubio and Baines. Like, Devin Booker is shooting 51% from three right now. (laughs) That's probably not going to hold. He's shooting 54% from the field. That's probably not going to hold. And that's not even a slight to Devin. It's that nobody in the NBA can keep up this kind of just ridiculous pace over the course of uh, this kind of usage, unless we think Devin Booker has turned into a legitimate MVP candidate, which I'm not there. Uh, I think Devin is really good, and I think he's maybe going to have a case as as an all-star in the West, given the fact that uh, there have been some injuries that have taken guys like Stephen Curry off off the board. Clay Thompson's obviously off the board this season. Uh, Devin's going to be right in that mix, but I worry about what happens to their offense once the shooting regresses a little bit. It's really good that they have more shooters now, like Dario Saric is shooting 37% from three. Kelly Oubre is shooting 35% from three. Uh, You know, Tyler Johnson is a pretty consistent three-point shooter. Javon Carter can knock down shots from distance. Like these guys being on the court, they're going to help. But I think that I foresee the offense dropping uh, more into like middle of the pack, at least uh, in terms of across the NBA efficiency. And defensively, it's just going to be interesting. Uh, they are like middle of the pack right now. I think they have potential to stay there. I think they have been really, really solid on that end. Would I bet on it? I don't know. But I I do think that this is a team that probably hovers in the vicinity of 500. Um, maybe like 38 wins, 30, 39 wins. Maybe they're this year's Sacramento Kings, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of how I view them. And just as a general caveat to everything we're saying, at least I'm speaking for myself, if you want to know like regression statistics as far as like how teams are shooting against them on open shots, like I, I don't have all those numbers in front of me. Like follow Seth Partner or something. So I just want to get that out there. And my last point on Phoenix is it's going to be interesting what happens with it comes back. Not I, I'm not one of these people that are like they have to start Baines. They're clearly going to start Aiton. I mean, they have so much committed to him and stuff. Politically, they have to. I'm just curious on how they manage both of their minutes. Do they play together? at the four or five like it's going to be an interesting dilemma because again I, I can't state this enough it's kind of become a joke online like oh aaron baines but he's playing legitimately great basketball right now and he's a very big part of what they've been up to this point yeah totally agree uh, i think that that can't go stated enough aaron baines has been unbelievable he's been genuinely one of the 10 best centers in the nba so far this season something like that right yeah i absolutely think so i think you could even make a case like for like top five even just as far as the sample that we've seen thus far but top 10 yes and and that's 
do I expect that to hold necessarily the same level? Maybe not, but he's a very good player. And I think the Suns have definitely found something here, both as, as far as culturally instilling that kind of physicality and competitive fire in their team and legitimately skill-wise, like his screen setting and his shooting has been so big for them. It's funny, like his numbers are very similar, let's say, to Nikola Jokic's. Now, Jokic is, they're just so much more valuable because of the attention he creates, right? Uh, but like Aaron Baines is averaging 16 points and, you know, six rebounds and three assists. Nikola Jokic has not had like a Jokician start to the season that we've been accustomed to seeing for the last two years. Uh, I think he's averaging right around 16 points uh, per game to start the year. And his efficiency is way down. He's not shooting the ball particularly well from three. Now he is averaging uh, six assists per game versus the three that Baines is. But, you know, it's it's just kind of crazy to contrast those two, especially with the defensive value that Baines gives you. Um, it puts into context the fact that I can bring that up. Note that Jokic is still very clearly in much a much better basketball player than Aaron Baines. But just yeah. say like... This is the kind of impact that Aaron Baines has had this year. Like he is in the conversation with guys of that ilk uh, who have maybe not started the season particularly well. Like he's not Towns. He's not Joel Embiid who started really well. Jokic has not started the season particularly well. Uh, And because of that, Baines is he's been in the conversation somewhat. Yeah, and that's the key is we're not talking about necessarily extrapolating this forward is Baines a top five center in the NBA. That's not the point. I mean, he might be, I guess. I, I would still bet against it. But the point is that he's been that level of play thus far this year, and he deserves a ton of credit for that. Yeah, totally agree. I, I want to talk about the Lakers next. Uh, we were talking about this before the podcast began. Uh, they're sitting at 8-2 and two right now. Uh, I think a big part of the reason that the Lakers are as good as they are is Dwight Howard. Uh, it's uh, He's not the biggest reason. Anthony Davis has been unbelievable. LeBron James has been unbelievable. Um, but Dwight Howard has been an incredibly critical part of what the Lakers have done because the way the Lakers are winning games right now is on defense. Uh, they have the best defensive rating in the NBA. They're below a 100 defensive rating, which is just kind of unbelievable. And you look at what Dwight is giving them in the minutes that he is on the floor. It is genuinely exceptional. He is awesome right now. And it was something that I did not see coming. He's moving his feet really well. He's protecting the rim. He's allowed the Lakers to play Anthony Davis at the four and just uh, shut shit down basically around the basket. I mean, when uh, Dwight Howard is on the floor and Dwight plays a lot of minutes with backups versus with Davis, like it's probably a pretty even split, I would imagine. They're actually a little bit better defensively, despite the fact that Dwight is coming off the bench. So uh, it really says a lot to me that Dwight has been as good as he has been so far this season. Yeah, I mean, in his own right, he's been really good moving his feet. I haven't watched all the Lakers games. I tend to favor watching NBA teams when I have time that have like prospects on them. So obviously the Lakers are incredibly good. So I watched them against Memphis, for example, and his contained defense on John Morant was really good in space. Like he was moving really well in that setting. And I think for what he does, unlocking Davis at the four, because Davis wants to play the four. Everybody kind of knows this by now. He's going to have to play some five. But those mat- those lineups with those two there, they throw Caruso in there as a team defender with LeBron. And LeBron has been really impressive defensively to me this year in the games that I've seen. Like he's really trying off the ball, making good rotations. Like he's tagging the role man, like deflecting lobs and stuff. I've been pretty impressed with him 
on that end. And just the size and the agility they can put on the floor with Howard moving like this. When you have that rim protection, him and Anthony Davis, that's a <laughs> that's pretty damn stout. I don't see a lot of teams being able to, to penetrate. Like Morant was having some real issues finishing around the basket when I watched that game, and that's to be expected, of course. But he's not used to having two rim protectors there. You're used to having maybe one guy in space you have to beat. But now it's kind of like, it's not the same thing, but it's kind of like the Milwaukee situation with Lopez dropping, and then you have Giannis as kind of like the backline guy. When the Lakers can do that with Dwight and then Anthony Davis at the four, that's just a ton of length. That's a ton of versatility there. And LeBron at the three a lot of the time too. Like Exactly. <laughs> LeBron, uh, for as much as his defense was derided last year, uh, he is still six foot eight with like a seven foot two wingspan and is a monster backline defender when he wants to be. Uh, you mentioned it, you know, like you said, Anthony Davis is one of the better help side rim protectors in the entire NBA. And if you can play drop coverage with Dwight uh, or play like, you know, basically just a show out slide with the point guard for two slides, then recover kind of situation uh, in pick and roll. It's really quite, uh, quite impressive. Dwight Howard's four most common teammates this year on the floor. Um, He's played 144 of his 200 minutes with LeBron James. He has played 104 of his minutes with Contavious Caldwell Pope, 96 of his minutes with Alex Caruso, 94 of his minutes with Quinn Cook, uh, 91 minutes with Troy Daniels, and then 92 minutes with Anthony Davis. So he's played about 45% of his minutes with Anthony Davis. And in the minutes where Dwight is on the floor, the Lakers, again, have an actually better defense than what... uh, they do whenever uh, Dwight Howard is off the floor in those 92 minutes where Dwight Howard is on the floor with Anthony Davis, the Los Angeles Lakers have a 90.5 defensive rating. That is just absolutely monstrous. It's unbelievable. Um, what the Lakers have been able to do on defense with that combination. Yeah, and you can see that on a film. I hadn't even seen the stats on any of this, but like you can just see how suffocating they are. And I think I saw a stat on Twitter last night of like Anthony Davis, what he's allowing defensively around the basket is like less than 30%. And just goes to show like that length combination there is just, it's stifling. And I, this is the interesting part for me is the Lakers have kind of zigged while was, every, a lot of other teams have zagged as far as playing these bigger lineups. And again, I watched the Memphis game and that's the game Anthony Davis won. At like 27 free throw attempts but he's just bludgeoning force he's too big for for most fours in the nba like most guys aren't most teams are starting more of a combo forward there they're not starting anybody that has davis's measurables so i think that's really interesting because dwight's defense and how good they've been on that end allows you to unlock that offensive ability for davis the ability to draw fouls and really just overwhelm guys in the post isolation uh, it, it's a very interesting team like i do think the lakers are definitely in the, I, i've had them with the clippers in the top i don't know how they necessarily match up against the Clippers with Paul George, but they are very formidable. I think to answer the overall question that we're going through, are they real or not? I think the Lakers are absolutely real. Yeah. And the funny thing is like, we're talking about defense and the Lakers and we haven't even brought up Danny Green yet. Uh, Danny Green has been just an awesome, awesome find for the Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, in the minutes that Danny Green plays, uh, the two players that have the highest net ratings on the Lakers right now, in the minutes that these guys play, uh, 
First is Dwight Howard. Second is Danny Green. Uh, And look, this isn't to say that they are better players than LeBron and Anthony Davis. A lot of the reason that they have those net ratings is because of what they unlock when they're on the floor with Anthony Davis and LeBron James. Um, But Danny has just been such a perfect fit. He's slotted in perfectly at the two guard spot uh, and just given the Lakers so much more space to operate. One of the best emergency signings in free agency that we've seen in a while, as far as how that went down with Kawhi and being able to get Danny Green two years, 30 million. It honestly saved the Lakers, frankly, like who would they be playing if not for him? Like, Caldwell Troy Pope Daniels or Quinn Cook. Year. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just like they, Avery Bradley, I think it's been a little bit better than I expected, frankly, but they don't have a ton of depth on the wing and like what, what green brings their team as far as filling the gaps. He's done this his entire career on contenders and he's just doing it again on the Lakers. Like he's, this guy just wins. He wins you basketball games with his decision-making on both sides with his defense. And when the shot's going, I have some issues about how versatile is his shot in the playoffs. Like you can kind of run him off the line. He doesn't have the most versatile jump shot, but with LeBron, he's going to get him the ball in good spots where he can just get into a catch and shoot. And this guy just wins you games. Yeah, totally agree on that. Uh, you brought up the question of, are they for real? I absolutely think this Lakers team is for real. Do I think that they are um, the best team in the NBA for real? I would still probably default to the Clippers once they get Paul George back. But like you said, I think they're in the conversation with the Clippers. No question. I think they're in the conversation with um, another team that we'll talk about here in a minute, Philadelphia. They're in the conversation with uh, another team in Boston who I'm not as convinced on right now. Um This Lakers team is going to be one of the best teams in the NBA this year. And uh, I honestly just really hope that we get a Lakers Clippers Western Conference Finals. Um, That to me is the best possible outcome here. 100%. I think that gives you the star power, gives you really interesting matchups. I hope LeBron is still fresh by that point. That was my concern with the Lakers coming into the year was all the ball handling responsibility. And that's why I don't have as much issue with them running so much through Davis in the post. They just have to take some of that stress off LeBron where he has to do absolutely everything on offense. That was my point of concern. We'll see how Kuzma fits back into the calculus. I did not watch the game last night. I haven't watched any game this year for the Lakers. I think Kuzma's only played two, but I have not seen him his fit on this team and and how that is going to be brought up and how does he fit defensively all of those issues like what are their lineup combinations that's something to to look out for for me just because I haven't seen it next to LeBron I'm very curious like I don't know what Kuzma could really fetch you on the trade market frankly I I don't know if you're getting like a a really good ball handler which I think the Lakers could really use another guy that can initiate your offense but I don't know if that guy's going to be available for Kuzma it's funny like who is the guy that could really work for them um it's kind of hard to find that singular player that like plays for a bad team, right? That uh, yeah, that could potentially be available. It, yeah, it's off the top of my head. I'm struggling to like really sit down and be like, oh, this is the guy that makes the most sense. Like, I don't love the idea of Chris Paul. Uh, I don't think that they would love the idea of Chris Paul. Maybe LeBron would, but like, I, I don't know that <laughs> um, he really fixes a lot of things for them as much as anything, uh, unless you like really believe in his offensive ability, rebounding and his defensive ability continuing to age. Well, Oh man, it's hard. It's hard to find that one guy that's like, you know, maybe just slightly out of the rotation or something like that. That could like really step in and make it work. Well, yeah, and it's hard for them to aggregate contracts. I mean, they can trade right. Pablo Pope's eight million, but they're not trading Danny Green. They can't trade Danny Green, and he makes you know fourteen six. So after that, how do they really get to some of these larger well, numbers like a Chris Paul? So it limits them a little bit. Well, and Caldwell Pope has a no trade too, which is uh, makes this even more complicated. There you go. So that. Uh, 
that's what I, I was thinking about that because I was thinking about p- potential fits, and I couldn't come up with like a legitimate good name for the Lakers. Like again, like if everything went awry for some of these teams, maybe you could present an argument, but I don't know what that looks like right now. Yeah, maybe like if Kobe White would like really ridiculously emerge, like maybe you could convince me on like Sadoransky uh, after January fifteenth or something. Or December 15th, I guess. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe just like kind of a, a stopgap that just makes really good decisions can play off the ball, too. Maybe, the, yeah, I think they're going to have to go for one of those salaries that isn't like so immense. Like it's going to have to be one of those right. middle tier salaries because they can get to that point. I, they're not going to be able to get to a Chris Paul. And of course, the Lakers fans are still putting hope in, you know, Iguodala getting bought out. Maybe they think Chris Paul will somehow, even though I don't think that's going to happen. But I, I guess I've seen crazier things, and they would be, of course, the top of the list for a lot of these guys. If they could get Iguodala too, like even though he's not exactly what they need as far as a ball handler, like his perimeter defense on that team, they could really use another wing type defender to throw at the Clippers, especially. Yeah, totally agree. So yeah, the, the Lakers are for real. Uh, I don't really know that we need to dive deeper into that. Uh, do you want to go good team or a uh, team that's struggling right now next? Let's mix in a team that's struggling just to uh, even the odds here a little bit. <laughs> the uh, the New York Knicks. Oh. The New York Knicks are 2-9 and nine after uh, last night's uh, late debacle against the Chicago Bulls. Um, that game was 85-85, I think, and they lost by 18. Uh, 2-9, and nine, they have the worst offense in the league. They have the 23rd rated defense in the league. Uh, a negative 11 net rating. They're playing it just like a glacially slow pace while not taking a lot of threes. Like I, I watched a lot of Nick's tape over the course of the last like three days to write this big thing uh, for the rookie scale prospect series. And I took, I do like understand where Nick's fans have their gripes with David Fisdale. Like, do I think he's the biggest problem? No, uh, I think that the bigger problem is James Dolan. And I think an even bigger problem than Fisdale is like Steve Mills and the guy running guys running the front office. Having said that David Fisdale's offense is driving me nuts. Like they initiate the offense way too close to the basket. Um, they're really not getting anything in the way of like geographic spacing on the court. Uh, they're initiating like basically right at the three point line instead of like five feet above the three point, three point line. Um, the, just the mismatched parts on this team don't really work. They don't run a ton of actions to get a lot of open threes. Even uh, it's just a really bad situation that is just a huge bummer to watch right now. Honestly, yeah, and I think for me it starts more with the personnel side than it does the coaching. I'm not a huge Fisdale guy either by any means, but I, I think that when you have a roster construction like this, where you have in your starting lineup, you have guys like Randall. You, you play a conventional conventional center like Mitchell Robinson around him. You you know, Marcus Morris, someone who shot well from three this year, but someone who doesn't really have shooting gravity. Teams don't really care if he shoots off the catch for the most part. Like, you don't see a ton of attention being paid to him. Then you have RJ, who is hit or miss on jump shots. And then you start Neil Aquino. You kind of mix in Alfred Payton. We've seen Dennis Smith at times. It's just from a personnel standpoint, this team was never good. I, I didn't understand. There was some preseason that the Knicks were better than the Raptors. And you're just like, what? the fuck are you doing like this team is not well constructed to win in the current nba landscape i will give fizdale this like i do think utilizing rj he's done some good things there again when you play this big yeah. and you play more at the three you play randall at the four you play neil Akeen at the one you force a lot of teams like i watched the magic game for example and they put fournier on rj and that's like the best thing you can do for rj right now is give him a matchup where he can run through somebody a run through a smaller player get rim and 
the spacing isn't great by any means. The spacing is really bad. But at least he's getting RJ off curls, for example, doing that, getting him downhill so he, RJ can use his physicality to get to the rim. Like That's the one positive thing I'll say about developmentally. That's, that is helping RJ at least somewhat uh, short term. Yeah, totally agree. And the other thing that they're doing is they're allowing him to initiate a little bit more, like just out of ball screens. They do run some pretty interesting actions where, you know, he'll hand the ball off to Taj Gibson at the elbow and then run to the corner. Taj will try and hit like a cross corner uh, kick to the opposite side of the floor. Then RJ will run back up and take a dribble handoff and try and attack and get downhill that way. That stuff is really interesting to me. I really like that. They've run a lot of high ball screen and roll with him and Mitchell Robinson and RJ has done a really good job of finding Mitchell on the, on these lob plays. Like I actually think RJ, I've seen like a couple of those advanced stats that are like all in one that say RJ has been the least or the most harmful player in the NBA so far, much in the same way that they said the same thing about Kevin Knox last year. I actually like a lot of what RJ has done this year. I think he's been pretty good. Like, I just think that what's happening around him doesn't accentuate his skill at all outside of Mitchell Robinson. Yeah, and I think those stats are going to capture, of course, the incredibly high usage and the poor efficiency. Like, that's what it's looking at as far as harming your team in that role. But he has to have creation usage because who else are the Knicks going to run offense through, really? Like, and, and do you want to run offense through anybody else? Because you're trying to develop RJ in certain ways. Like, yeah, he has not been good. He's ran a lot of pick-and-roll ball handler. I think he's made some good reads. Like, has he been efficient doing it? No, he's in the ninth percentile. He's like 12 of 40 total. I don't really care about those numbers for first-year guys a lot of the times, especially because, like, primary secondary ball handlers who are tasked with all of this creation usage they're almost never efficient like that's something we have to get through is like writing guys off after the first rookie year because they're not efficient players like is rj's free throw shooting is absolutely killing him like shooting 40 mid 40s from the foul line is just destroying him like he's not finishing well those are all concerns with rj overall like his shot when i want Knicks fans to like go through his tape and track the difference between how he shoots in rhythm off the catch when he can hop into shots and how he shoots in every other type of shot i would almost guarantee it's significantly better in rhythm uh so that's just something to track but i think people have to be a little less hardline on rj has he been good relative to other players in the nba who have his role no but he was never gonna be right away you know what i mean you can't just expect these guys to walk into the league and be luca like he, he was never luca yeah it's 100 percent right um you know he is shooting 44.8 percent from the free throw line right now that's just like an absurdly low number that is that's going to regress like RJ by the end of the year is going to be shooting at least 60% from the foul line if you get him like right around what his career average has been so far it's been somewhere between like 67 to 71% like he shot 75% at the FIBA tournament at the U19s where they beat Team USA you know he shot lower than that at times but like you get him like right around 67 which is I think a reasonable approximation of what his actual free throw value is his true shooting percentage is up over like 50 to 51 percent if i remember correctly which like if you then throw that into the mix with everything else that he does he'd look fine so far he's distributing the ball really well i actually love the passing reads that he's made i think that's been the most impressive part um Agreed. He's shooting 36% from three. I agree with you that that's probably a little bit higher than what his true talent level is right now. But like, he's not been aberrantly bad at almost anything so far other than free throw shooting. Yeah. And again, like, I think there are, there were always areas of concern with RJ. I'm not saying he's like a, a, 
a flawless prospect. Clearly there was, and I had very stark reservations about a lot of his game. Like you can see that in his finishing this year, he's 43 and a half percent in the half court around the basket. That's 22nd percentile for a guy that's, you know, six, seven, what, two twenty-five, two thirty. Like he just doesn't have that lateral agility. He doesn't win cleanly off the bounce. Those are all concerns. Like he's four of 16 yeah. on, on touch. It comes and goes. Um, he's never been a great jump shooter. He's five of 21 off the dribble. I'm not saying don't be concerned about RJ. I'm just saying the narrative of, panicking and being like this guy is terrible based on his advanced metrics when he was never going to be great there because <laughs> most rookie lead guards or whatever the, you wanted to find RJ's role as those, that high usage scoring role where you have to play make as well almost nobody is good at that right away yeah yeah no totally agree like the it's interesting they've played him in a few like semi-interesting lineups where he essentially acts as the lead guard right like so basically when Nilakina is on the floor he is the lead guard uh, cause Frank is not very good at offensing. Like, I'm sorry. Um, Frank is a really good defensive player who is starting to make strides as a jump shooter, which is really important for his long-term fit in the NBA. But like, y- you can't play him as a lead guard. He doesn't have a good enough handle. I don't think he sees the floor well enough. There's just not enough there to play him as a lead guard. I think you can play him as a secondary ball handler next to someone like RJ, but it's just not quite good enough. But there are lineups that you see sometimes like, um, They've played a couple of games. They've played a lineup of RJ Frank, Bobby Portis, Julius Randle, and Kevin Knox. So like a shooting center plus a couple of guys that can kind of shoot in Knox and Nilakina now a little bit. 131 offensive rating. Like that's a really, really good number. Um, You know, they throw together some of these lineups that actually have shooting on the floor. RJ Frank, Bobby Portis, Kevin Knox, Marcus Morris, a 130.8 offensive rating in limited minutes so far. Like they they have lineups that can work with RJ. I would like to see David Fisdale play more of those lineups, especially now that Mitchell Robinson is back in the fold. Yeah, I'm 100% with that. I think that Fisdale can do a a better job. maximizing RJ in certain sense, putting especially more floor spacing. It's more gravitational floor spacing as well. Some of these guys are shooting pretty well from three, but again, they don't command respect. So more lineups like that. I, I do like some of what I've seen. Again, I, I would like RJ to be eased in a little bit. Is like a, more of like a secondary slash tertiary guy. At times, attack closeout, shoot threes in, in rhythm. That's when you're going to get better efficiency from him. If you just throw him in and give him the ball, and you're, you, the paint's being clogged by Julius Randle, for example, and there's not a lot of gravity threats on the wing, how do you really expect the guy to really succeed? There aren't a lot of, again, there aren't a lot of rookie guards who are floor raisers that can really vault your team from very bad to respectable. And RJ is not that, in my opinion, he's not that level of talent, and it's unreasonable to expect him to do that when the team's roster construction is just not good. Well, the problem that RJ is running into too, and like, this is the thing that I noticed. And now this will transition into just like why the Knicks are so fucking bad. Um, They just have so many guys that like to operate in that mid range area. Uh, You know, guys like Marcus Morris, like he's most comfortable there. Julius Randle is most comfortable there. Like Bobby Portis likes to take up space, like in that range, whenever he's not spacing out to three Um, Taj Gibson loves to, you know, sit in that range and try and spot up for mid range jumpers. Right. So whenever RJ drives to the basket, like these big defenders just have no recourse for not coming off of him. Like, you every single big defender in these situations is just going to peel off of their man even with rj being good at finding those guys they just aren't good enough offensive weapons to make it worth not trying to contest his shot at the basket exactly right and i think for me overall 
with the Knicks. I, I just don't see the effort level, like the fuck you mentality that Phoenix has, the consistency. Like I watched the second half of the Cavs game and Mike Breen was talking about it. He was like, these guys didn't come out to play tonight. And who's setting the tone for this game? Like Randall, he's kind of like a, a fake play hard guy to me. Like because defensively, he just doesn't all the time. He lapses so much. He doesn't give you full effort. Like offensively, yes. But who's really setting the tone on both sides of the floor? It can't be Mitchell Robinson. Like he's just kind of sporadic as far as what he does on the floor. And he's a second year guy. That's completely unreasonable to expect. Neil Aquinas started. Is he going to be the vocal guy for that team? Is it Morris? Well, I, like, yeah, I was going to say that. That's who I think it is. I think it's Marcus. And the thing about that is that while I think Marcus does have like a lot of value in good situations, I can see also that in a situation like New York where there aren't a lot of like hyper vocal guys, where his outbursts, such as like slamming the ball on the ground, like. I think it was like earlier this week or maybe late last week. Um, and just like elbowing uh, Justin Ro- or the situation with Justin Anderson in the preseason. Yeah. Like th- th- this stuff just kind of, it's good to have a fire starter like Marcus, but you need to have someone that can get him in control a little bit more. You can't have him be the primary voice, you know? Exactly. And I think, Again, like comparing the Knicks to the Suns, the Suns have more talent, but like I just think that they have more veteran leadership that will get consistency out of the young guys and like they'll bring it every night and they'll bring it in the IQ department as well. And they fit reasonably well around the stars on Phoenix or, you know, Devin Booker, especially like the Knicks just don't have a balance of those two things. They don't have great fit and they don't have guys that really set the tone for the rest of the team. And that's something that. You know, matters as far as competing on a nightly basis in the regular season. And that's why you get a blowout to the Cavs. Like the Cavs, I mean, we're going to talk about the Cavs and they've been impressive in some ways, but the Cavs should not be blowing them out. And the Knicks shouldn't be scoring like 50 points like halfway through the third quarter, whatever the hell it was. That was just, it just can't happen. Yeah. And a lot of their guys, too, the Knicks guys, this is not the Cavs, they're just very happy to ISO and try and score, right? This team has very little ball movement. This team has very yes. little. Um, you know, quick decision makers. A lot of these guys like to dribble once, then pass it or dribble twice, try and survey the field and then pass it or survey the scene and then pass it. Right. Um, And that just really bogs down an offense. It allows defenses time to read and react and rotate back into position. And I think it's just really hard to have an offense um, that runs that way, unless you are uh, the Houston Rockets and you have, James Harden and Russell Westbrook, who are these hyper elite one-on-one creators. And even like Eric Gordon would be by far the best offensive player on the New York Knicks right now, which is like kind of saying a lot of where this team is, but also uh, like there are ways to do it, but you have to have just overwhelming talent. And this Knicks team doesn't have that overwhelming talent. They have a lot of guys that would have made sense as like, role player signings for like good or semi good teams. Like I actually like the Marcus Morris signing for the San Antonio Spurs whenever that happened before his whole situation went down. The problem is that you can't have all of these guys being the main cogs of your offense. And that's what the Knicks have right now. They have a lot of guys that are like one-on-one scorers um, that can kind of working in second units, trying to do it against first units and trying to do it when there are three of them on the floor. And that just doesn't work. So I guess to wrap this up, do you think the Knicks are this bad? Do you think there's going to be some positive regression there? Do I think that they are a minus 10 team or a minus 11 team the rest of the year? I don't. Do I think they are one of the three worst teams in the NBA? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I'm in alignment with that. I expect 
you know, RJ to make improvements. We'll see about Mitchell Robinson too. I just don't see an avenue for them to really vault tiers. I don't think they're going to vault into like the second worst tier in the NBA. I, they have so many infrastructure problems that I'm not sure can be remedied. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, they, uh, they are, they're, they're struggling right now. They're just not a fun watch either. Like I said, like I just watched like four or five of their games, uh, over the course of the no. last three days. Like they're just not fun to watch. Um, Support for the Game Theory Podcast comes from Manscaped, who is uh, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. That is just uh, beautiful. One of the talking points is jingle balls to the walls, fellas. Uh, Listen up. Uh, This is a wild. I I love this copy so much. I love Manscaped. Look, this is a revolutionary company. Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. Their lawnmower, too, is proprietary skin uh, safe technology so that this trimmer doesn't nick, it doesn't snag. It's a really, really good uh, trimmer. I use it for my beard. Uh, it's just an awesome, awesome, smooth shave, I think. They also have really great settings that allow you to uh, attach on and really uh really get the kind of length that you want on your beard uh it's just an awesome awesome product so you should go to manscaped.com and get 20 percent off with free shipping uh with the code theory that's t-h-e-o-r-y we're in uh starting to get near the holiday season so this is a really good gift for uh, a guy in your life that has some uh hair issues uh be it uh, as manscaped so eloquently puts it uh, along the family jewels or around the face. Uh, so go get 20% off and free shipping under the code theory at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code theory. Um, the, the last line here is clean up your nuts and make Santa proud this year. Uh, why Santa would see your nuts. I'm not entirely sure, but we'll roll <laughs> with that. Shout out manscaped. Uh, Let's talk about the Cavs. I, I don't think this is going to be a long section because, like, I don't think the Cavs are great. I don't think their fan base has, like, illusions of making the playoffs necessarily. Um, they're four and six, I believe, right now. Four and seven, four and six, something like that. But I think the big thing is that, like, this team just battles. Um, they really fight. They're 16th in defensive rating right now with a 107.1. Uh, this team has the least, I think, defensive talent maybe along with like a team like the Knicks in the NBA, in the NBA getting Tristan Thompson back has been huge for their defense, but more than that, like it's a mentality. These guys don't really give up and they're kind of a pest to play every time that you play them. Like even for good teams, like there have been teams that have really, really struggled while dealing with uh, dealing with this team. Like Indiana uh, had to like really battle in the midst of like their play. Uh, Boston had to like scratch and claw to like a six point win. Uh, what was that like a week ago? If I remember correctly, I watched that game. Like this is a pretty, you know, feisty group uh, under John Beeline. It really is. And I give a lot of credit to Tristan Thompson. I tweeted that he definitely went to Germany after that Bulls game. I was just, he was awesome in that game. He looked like, you know, old Tristan Thompson, which was great to see him and Kevin Love have been really good this year. I mean, Love's not shooting, you know, a great percentage three but he's really competing on the glass and i think those two veterans is kind of setting the tempo they they can't protect the rim i mean for the most part like thompson can a little bit but even he gets exploded over love just gets beat 
consistently in, in those kinds of coverages, but they're still playing hard. They're exerting energy and they're setting the tone for the guys. And, you know, Sexton, w- the one thing I'll say about him is that dude competes. Like, he, he wants to play. He, he wants to, I, yep. I think he wants to win. So, like, he's that's never been an issue with him as far as, like, the guy's competitive fire on the floor. So, I think that's what you see on that roster. And they do have some floor spacing. So, that would differentiate them from a team like the Knicks. But I think more so, it's just their competitive their level of competitiveness for a roster that doesn't have basically any defensive talent to me is is really impressive so let's talk about uh the sexton garland backcourt real quick because you and i talked about them after the game after the i think the first two or three games of the year and i i was pretty concerned about the way it would go defensively but i want to talk about offense as much as anything i think the fact that they've been allowed to move colin off of the ball has really opened up his offensive game he's been much much uh more attack oriented and i think that it's helped simplify things for him a little bit more and that's kind of what i liked about the beeline hire is the simplification offensively not going to put too much on any one of the players and that's what i've seen like it's more like simple pick and roll they're making it two man read stuff like for garland tacking the rim it's either hitting the dive man with thompson or like maybe a one pass away kick out you don't see a lot of they're not putting too much pressure and too much onus on the young guys and like you said it simplifies it for calling catch and shoots attacking off the catch being aggressive there gaps at least from the games that I've seen with Cleveland, that's why I like Beeline is because he's kind of going to start from the bottom because he, he's used to young players. So he knows how they think and how to develop them. I mean, that's something he's always done well, in my opinion, at Michigan is just kind of start simple and then build it up from there. And I think that's what you have to do with a guy like Colin Sexton is just start from the baseline and, and just try to, to maximize what he does well and what he does best right now. And what he did best last year was honestly, he, he became a really good shooter. So you got to try to find, find a way to maximize that. Yeah, he's actually, I think, just a good scorer now. Uh, I like feel pretty confident with him with the ball in his hands trying to get a bucket. Uh, Darius Garland has been interesting in just kind of a variety of ways, I think, just because um, we are seeing some of the issues of him trying to take like some of these deeper three-pointers. He's shooting 25% from three, he's shooting 32% from the field. Um, he isn't like an ideal point guard. I don't think like he's averaging 3.7 assists per game and playing like 30 minutes a night because, you know, one of the things that there's always been with him. And I mentioned this time whenever he was drafted, like this is a guy that doesn't always see the floor hyper. Well, like he'll make a spectacular pass occasionally, but he misses a lot of passes. And it's interesting to me that they decided, I wonder what made them go with this, where he would be the nominal point guard with Colin playing a little bit more off guard. I think it was the right call. And like, I think that Darius is going to be fine long term. Like he's not efficient right now. He's probably never going to be efficient in his first 10 NBA games or whatever, unless he got off to like a hyper hot shooting start. But I really like what I've seen from Darius to the point that, uh, I guess, like, I don't love what I've seen from Darius, but I, I guess I should just say <laughs> that, like, he's been he's been a little bit more under control, maybe, than what I thought he would be. And again, it goes back to Beeline simplifying things a little bit. Even though he hasn't been super effective, I think that the mentality and just the way he's uh, been poised has been good to see a little bit. 
Yeah, and I like the fact that Beeline's not asking him to be Trey Young. Like, that's not – Garland isn't Trey Young. Like, he can't run an offense like that. You can't just run double high and admit, and he makes all the reads, and that's not the way that Beeline's using him. It's more of, like, within the system, within the construct of the offense. He has better vision than Collins, so that's why I like Darius playing more on the ball. He's actually a very – I think he's a pretty good two-man passer. Like, he can make the simple pick-and-roll read, like the lobs, like the pocket passes. He's okay at that. I, I think that he actually shows pretty strong proficiency in his first year. Outside of that, I mean, there's some definite issues. He – basically has a 50% floater rate, which means like around the basket, he's 10 of 27 on runners in the half court. He's 10 of 27. So basically half his shots around the basket are floaters. And he's not being effective with those. And I think that speaks some to forward momentum touch, something that he's going to have to get down. He's going to have to have that runner game because he's not a crazy athlete. I don't see a lot of craft finishes from him at a high level. So there's a lot of areas to work on. I do expect him to be a better shooter than this straight up. Like he's a very good shooter to me. Um, some of that's going to be more shot selection. No I question. Think he's going to be good. Good off the catch within the flow of the offense. Like he's three of thirteen off the catch right now in the half part. Like that's going to regress positively. He's a good shooter, um, potentially a very good shooter. So that stuff's going to get better. Is he a pure point guard that you're going to run your entire offense? He's not an offensive engine. But again, that's not how Beeline's using him, and that's what I like about this. Yeah, and again, like you mentioned, Tristan at the top, I do want to bring him up. He has been uh, pretty good defensively when he's been on the floor. I think that he's done a really good job of kind of captaining their defense. And Kevin Love, again, just being a vet and like knowing where to be rotationally, like no one's going to confuse Kevin Love with like some defensive stalwart. But Kevin has been like in the right place defensively and has been very useful for them. And you combine that with his offensive ability where uh, he is shooting, I want to say, like not great from three, but overall has been uh, just a really good release valve and a really good playmaker for these young guards to have around. Um, they can also spot up beyond the arc and space the floor and gets gravity because teams respect him from out there. And uh, having these two veteran bigs around, I think is really allowing and two veteran bigs that know how to play a role specifically. Like Kevin hasn't bumped back into like Minnesota Kevin mold where he's trying to dominate and, you know, be the focal point only of the offense. Uh, These two guys know how to play a role. They don't like ball stop all the time. They're happy uh, just doing what they can. In Kevin's case, he can average 20 points a night, or I think he's like right around 18 or 19 right now. And in Tristan's case, he is uh, a really good role man who crashes the offensive glass exceptionally well and um, is starting to add a little bit as a as a shooter, like a, a just a small amount as a shooter from distance. <laughs> yeah, with Love, again, you noted a 33.9% from three, but that's why you can't just view percentages in a vacuum. It's because it's about how the defense guards do it. And Love's always going to have gravity as a high-level shooter and because he gets him off at volume. He's a formidable threat that opens the lane up for um, Cleveland's guards. And I, again, I, the last note I have on them, I don't know if this is real. This is kind of the, the toughest thing. I don't think it is as far as four and six. Like I expect them to regress a little bit just because I, I just don't believe in their defense. And one injury to either Love or Thompson, I think, sinks them because I don't think Larry Nance or Trey. that I've seen has been... Yes, or trade. So there's a lot of factors there, and I, I don't think Larry Nance has been good in the games that I've seen, so I don't see a lot of depth on this team in that respect, and they are very heavily reliant, of course, on young players in their backcourt. But as long as Thompson and Love are healthy, I, I don't think they're going to be a sinking ship. I, I think they're going to be at least, like, they're going to try on a nightly basis, and they're going to at least have the kind of culture where teams aren't going to blow them out consistently by 25 to 30 points. I don't think the veterans are going to allow that. 
Yeah, the defense has not been very good with Larry Nance on the floor. His defense particularly has not been great. I actually do think like he's gotten to the point where he's like an offensive player now, which is very interesting and weird uh, given where he was in L.A. But nonetheless, uh, I think we can probably move on because I agree with you that uh, this is not or anywhere near uh, a playoff team right now. They are, uh, I, w- I want to say that they are just like right around even in terms of net rating, maybe like minus one or something in net rating. I'd bet they're probably around like a minus three or four net rating team. But if they scratched and clawed their way to 30 wins, I would not be like totally shocked just because they really do battle. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying as far as it was difficult for me to place them exactly on the scale. I think they're going to regress negatively. I don't think they're a playoff team. I think they're probably like a bottom, you know, five, six team in the East, but it's just what level of bad are they going to be in New York? I think they're better than New York. I think they're going to be consistently better as far as their competitive culture. Um, I don't know how they're going to end up like Orlando's behind them right now. The East, frankly, like the seventh seed right now, we talked about this pre-pod is the Hornets tied with the Cavs and they're both four and six. So the East at the bottom is just a total nightmare thus far. So I don't know how far they fall in that. Do I think Atlanta's a better team in a vacuum? They have a lot of problems. We probably should have talked about them at some point in this podcast, but I do expect the Cavs to get to be worse relative to the field. I don't think they're a playoff team. I don't think they're a seventh or eighth seed, but I am pretty impressed with what they've been able to do offensively, especially beeline with these younger guys. All right, let's talk about Boston. So, you know, Boston is funny because I was not super high on Boston coming into the year. Um, I am higher on them now than I was coming into the year. They just look a lot more happy to be playing with one another. Like that, that desire to be around one another has really stood out to me. Uh, I think that if we're going to start anywhere, I want to start with Jalen Brown just because his growth this year through, uh, you know, the first six games he's played has been very, very impressive. I'm still skeptical that it's going to hold up because, you know, he is still shooting 30% from three point range and finishing at a rate around the basket that we haven't really seen from him before. He has done a good job. Like he looks like he's added more of a left hand to his game. Uh, it looks like he's more comfortable driving and like being in traffic now, which is really important. Um, I, what do you think of Jalen? Like, I'll, I'll just throw it to you. Cause like, I think it's, I think it's hard to say like, cause right now he's averaging like 20 points and seven rebounds a night and has like a two to one assist to turnover ratio. So like things that we've never seen from him before, but I wonder how much of it is sustainable. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I'm not buying necessarily right now without a bigger sample. I just want to see it play out more. I do think there's something to the point of him being empowered to be a playmaker more, trusting him more on the ball. Like he's ran actually a comfortable amount of pick and rolls this year. He's already ran 20, which is a good amount. I mean, that's like almost 20% of his possessions, which we haven't really seen from him. You know, finishing around the basket, like you said, he's 14 of 22. Like he's 64% at the rim in the half court. I don't expect that to hold. He's always had finishing problems, even though he seems to he's been better there this year as far as even the eye test. Maybe it's going to be better. I don't know if it's going to be this much better. And then pull-ups off the dribble, he's 8 of 17. So I think we're just seeing him being stretched a little bit more. And he's so far, he's held up well. And that's a testament to Boston's another one of these teams where they really pass the ball. It's more egalitarian now. It's not just Kyrie, 1-5 pick and roll with Horford and everybody else stands around. They're trying to get these other guys involved off the catch. Multiple guys are capable of running pick and roll sets. Like Tatum can shoot off the dribble. That's probably his best thing is shooting pull-up threes because he's not a great finisher either. But you're seeing you know, Stevens trust these ancillary guys a little bit more. and Maybe that's making them more consistently engaged. 
I think that's probably true. Uh, what do you think of the Kemba Walker versus Kyrie Irving edition? I mean, yeah, there's been a lot of debate about that back and forth over the last few years, even like, do I think Kyrie's the more talented player? I do as a shot maker, I think in the playoffs, especially, but as a culture guy, it's, it's pretty hard to make the argument for Kyrie at this point. Like Kemba, I think is much more amenable to sharing the workload and he can give you in theory, he can give you a lot of what Kyrie gives you as far as off the dribble shot making. That's something that Boston doesn't really have from their lead guard outside of him. Like they just don't have another guy that can do that at a high level. That's that shifty. So, I don't know. Like, I, th- I think it's Kemba is better for their culture, 100%. I think he it, he kind of allows you to play his play style. It's not like he's going to command the ball and be like, I want the ball every single time. That's not the kind of player that really he's ever been. He's just kind of been pushed into that role in a role with the Hornets because they didn't have enough surrounding talent. Now we're kind of seeing him be a part of a team that has other very good NBA players. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. This team's just running better. Uh, like I said, like I even wonder like how much like Terry Rozier was a problem there last year. Like maybe that's unfair, just cause, like I'm not up there. But like just having Kemba versus Kyrie and Terry, I think has been uh, really, really beneficial for them. This is a team that has been incredibly efficient so far in transition, which. Uh, it's not like a major surprise like they do have athletes but this is not like a team that i associate with like a high degree of uh transition adeptness right like it's not like they're getting out in transition all the time and creating like they're an above average team in terms of percentage of time out in transition but they're not like way above average or anything it's more of the finishing efficiency that's been super high for them so far i mean I think that another big factor for them as much as anything else is just that they are really, really deep and can throw a lot of different guys at you. Like Daniel Tice has started seven games so far and has been uh, pretty good. Like I actually think he's been particularly good defensively in the time that I've seen him on the floor. Robert Williams has given them pretty good minutes. Uh, You know, Grant Williams has given them pretty good minutes. Uh, like, honestly, I think Brad Wanamaker has given them really good minutes. Carson Edwards, uh, isn't shooting particularly well yet, but you would assume that that's going to happen, uh, and turn around at some point. And that's before we even get to like Marcus Smart, Gordon Hayward has been, uh, really good so far this season. Uh, you know, like we said, Jalen and Kemba have been really good. Jason Tatum has been uh, a bit inefficient, uh, inside the arc, but has been generally pretty good so far this season. I think like, this is just a team that is smart. They play a an efficient brand of basketball. They're first in offensive turnover rate right now, um, which really, really helps. Uh, they're just a really, really intelligent. Uh, they play an intelligent brand of basketball that I really like. They're the people's team. I tweeted this the other night. Like, I, I love watching them play basketball. I, there's a lot of high IQ guys. Like you said, the ball really moves. There's there's complete emphasis on ball movement, and it's more egalitarian, yeah. which is it's, it's really fun to watch. Like, as much as I love watching the Mavs for Luka, like, they can frustrate the living shit out of me because it's basically all Luka. When you watch that game against Boston, it's basically Luka pick and roll, and that's it. Like, there's not a, not a lot of other things that they do to diversify. In Boston, the ball's swinging. They have talent. Like, I think Hayward has been the guy this year that's really swung things for them and unfortunately yeah. suffered that left hand injury. But he was, he'd was he been really awesome. Like he, he was one of the biggest wild cards coming to this year. It was like, is he going to be, is he a contract that they're going to potentially trade as far as being able to aggregate with such a high salary? 
salary. And he's been the opposite. He's been the guy that's been legitimately really good for them. And they have really competent players on this team. They are deep. I still think I'm not really totally buying the center spot yet. I think that's one of the weaker positions in the league as far as starting overall. Like Robert Williams is a total wild card. He'll have some incredible splash plays and he'll do the dumbest shit ever. This is why he fits uh, Bill Simmons' trick or treat. Kind of used to call Tony Allen trick or treat. Tony Allen, that's Robert Williams. Like that's the guy. Um, You'll get great performances. Not really great, but you'll get really good flash plays. You'll get really negative plays. I like how they use Grant Williams at the five. I think some of their best lineups, honestly, he unlocks so much yeah. with his screening and his playmaking. When you can get away with that. This is why I really like Boston as an organization is because I think they know what they're doing. Like They, they get guys, they can fit them into their scheme, and they know how to optimize players. That's why I loved when Grant went there, just because I think they're going to be able to do that really well. Do I think they need a center? I think they have to look at that on the trade market and see who they can potentially get that can really help them. If they want to take that next step between i think right now they're like a tier two team in the east they're behind milwaukee they're behind philadelphia in my opinion i don't expect them to be the number one team in the west or in the east sorry but i do think they're formidable if they can get like one more centerpiece um to add to the equation that that might vault them into that topper echelon tier maybe at the bottom of it but i think that's how they take the jump is getting more reliable play at five yeah i agree it's hard with their salary structure like I'll be honest, like I've asked around a little bit. I don't think that they're going to trade Gordon. Like even before this hot start to the season, I never really got the impression that they were going to trade Gordon. Um, but Gordon this year, I think, like you said, has really unlocked a lot. He looks like he's finally back from that injury. He, and by back, I mean, it looks like he has confidence again uh, coming back from that injury. He was a guy that uh, last year just looks a little bit tentative on the floor in a way that was not how he played when he had his best years in Utah. Uh, this year he's been confident. He's been uh, aggressive. He is knocking down threes. Uh, he is making really, really good decisions. Like you said, like this is a team filled with like just smart offensive players who keep it moving. Kemba, Marcus Smart, uh, Gordon Hayward, even like Jason to an extent has yeah. excised some of that, uh, you know, dribble twice into the mid-range and hold the ball uh, from his game. So I really like what I've seen from Boston. I don't, I agree with you. I don't think they're the best team in the East. I think they're probably the third best team in the East though. And I did not expect that coming into the year. Yeah, I had them in that tier. I can't remember what the exact order was. I think I had them with Miami and I might've had Brooklyn in there too, which looks like a a pretty big mistake, but uh, I, I do like what I've seen from them. And I agree with your point about the trades. Like, it's very hard for them to aggregate to get. Like, I know Steven Adams was mentioned there. Then you have to deal Marcus Smart. Do you really want to deal Marcus Smart? Like, he was awesome. Did you watch that game against Milwaukee? He was so fucking good in that game. Like, that's one of the uh-uh. best games I've seen from, like, a quote-unquote role player in a long time. Like, his decisions, his rotations. He's just a brilliant basketball player. And if he shoots threes, he's so valuable to winning that it's very hard for them to deal with someone like that. Because that's another thing about this team is they're so versatile, man. They have so many wings on, like, bigger bodies that they can get super flexible with lineups with, like, with Tatum, Brown, Hayward, you had Smart in there. They can just, that's what they gave you, Grant Williams at the five. Like, that's why I like this team a lot is because they're very multiple in how they have lineups out there. They, I, I just think they, if they want to take that, you know, next step, they're going to need somebody, like if they play the Sixers in the playoffs, like who's guarding Embiid? Like, that's a big problem. So let, let's transition to the Sixers because I just, like, this isn't going to be a long section. I just, like, want to send out a note to 76ers fans. Just, like, relax 
a little bit. This was always going to be like kind of a tough integration. Like they're bringing in a lot of new pieces, right? Like you bring in Josh Richardson, you bring in Al Horford, Matisse Thibel, like he's honestly sat the bench the last couple of games, which I think has been smart because it's kind of allowed him maybe to slow down. He was fouling the shit out of everyone on the floor um, <laughs> and like just wasn't a super efficient offensive player at all, uh, which is my concern for him long term. But like, I, I still feel good about where the 76ers team is. Like, are, they're seven and three, and they feel like the, like, like, it just feels like in some circles of that fan base, the sky is falling sometimes. And I don't feel that way at all watching their games. Like, I think that they're going to be really good. I think some of the concern is looking at Al Horford. To me, he doesn't look quite the same. He might have lost a little bit. And if you start adding that across the board, like, again, like some of these things I I don't think are real. Like, Tobias Harris shooting 21% from three or 22%. Like, that's going to positively regress. Like, Josh Richardson is shooting 26%. Like, that stuff's going to vault up. Like, I'm not worried about that. I think the Horford thing to me, if he's not the same caliber of player that we saw in Boston in year one, that's when you can start to worry a little bit just because they are a very untraditional roster as far as how they implement offense. Like they don't have like your quote unquote primary initiator type. I think some of the panic is about Ben Simmons and the fact that go, go figure surprise. He hasn't extended his range. That's probably not going to happen this year. So once you get past that, I think that a lot of things that they're doing right now are correctable, figuring out an exact rotation, like Thibault, for example, like you noted. I think he played last night, but before that, he sat like three games because he's not making threes. He's low 20s. He's he's a little bit sped up on offense, and he can't really dribble the ball. That, those are all concerns, so that kind of takes away from some of his point of attack defense and just incredible team instincts and like back pressure and stuff. I think this team's set up pretty well for the playoffs, especially playing Milwaukee. There's no reason to panic, but I do think that there are there were always going to be infrastructure problems here. Predominantly, who creates offense off the dribble in the half court? And we don't have any answer to that unless Sixers fans were completely convinced that that was going to be Tobias Harris. And I've always had questions about that. Yeah, look, I get that. I do. The 76ers three losses this year on the road to Denver in what is quickly become the spike asking calls Nikola Jokic fat game. Uh <laughs> they lost by three on like a buzzer beater. They lost by, f- I think, two to Utah in like a tight game in Utah. And they lost by five to Phoenix at a game where Aaron Baines like went ham. And like Aaron Baines, I guess, is good now. But like. <laughs> and he owns that team. <laughs> and he owns that team too, right? Like they sent Aaron Baines uh, to the West Coast to get rid of Philly, to get him away from Philly. Um, <laughs> like that's this team's three losses. And if you look at the big picture here, this is like fine. Like, I, I'm like, like, I look at this and I'm just like, okay, like, sure, maybe they only have like a plus five net rating. And uh, sure, maybe there are still half court questions. Uh, and maybe they haven't been able to get Joel Embiid all of the rest that they would like to get him all the time, right? Like he missed a couple of games with uh, just like a slight injury, if I remember correctly. So like, I don't know, like, I just look at this and I'm like, this is all good. This is... This is going to be totally fine. Everything is all good. Relax, 76ers fans, please. Like, for, for your I own health. Like, I, I want, I, I want like, <laughs> Mike Levin to live a long life. I want uh, all of these great uh, Sixers fans to just be happy and enjoy a basketball team for once. And I get that, like, it's a weird fucking team, but just it's going to take some time and you're seven and three and you've lost your games by like a combined 10 points. You're totally fine. I don't see any reason to change opinions based on your preseason opinion. They haven't done anything to really alter my stance 
on the roster. Outside again, I want to watch more Horford to see exactly like where he's at because he's in, he's really important for them. So outside of that, I would say they're pretty much exactly what I respected or expected outside of some of these guys shooting really really poorly. Like again, Tobias Harris is not a 22% three-point shooter. That's going to that's going to come up. I don't think there's any, you know, reason to push the the panic alarm here. We're 10 games in. It was always going to be somewhat of an adjustment to have basically a lineup and have a roster that doesn't have like a real full-time initiator on their team. So that's, they have to kind of go through that process and try to integrate Josh Richardson, which has been, I, I think it's been fine in the games I've seen. I haven't had a problem with Josh's defense, for example, like Kemba kind of lit them up a little bit on opening night, but it's Kemba. Like he's incredibly shifty. He's hard to stay with, even apply back pressure too. So they're still a tier one team in the East for me. I do have reservations, but those existed before the season started. Yeah. <sighs> One thing that hasn't helped, like, their depth is weird. Like, they're relying a lot on Furkan Korkmaz right now. Um, it seems like they're taking, like, the long route with Zaire Smith, maybe. Uh, I think that Rich Hoffman wrote today in The Athletic about Zaire, so go read that. But, like, it's a weird amount of depth where they might need to make a deal at some point to, like, get more depth. But like, I get why there are worries here. But you very clearly, in my opinion, have the best defense in the NBA. You have played uh, one of the 10 toughest schedules in the NBA so far. You have had to go on the mountain road trip that you're not going to have to do the rest of the year, uh, which is something that isn't particularly great whenever you're talking about having to deal with like Joel Embiid at altitude when he's your focal point. Like this, this is about as good a start as what I think the 76ers could have asked. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And I think that that's a great point about Zaire is like some of the him being such a, you know, notable pick in that draft, especially with the trade for McHale, viewing that negatively because he hasn't really gotten court time. They've needed Furcon, like that game-winning shot against Portland, for example. And the fact that some of these guys, like, I'm not a huge Shake Milton believer. I wasn't like, before the season. He's asked to be playing, I mean, he's playing backup point guard. He's like their more traditional point guard. I don't think that's his best role at all. I think he's more of an off-ball player due to athleticism. He hasn't made great decisions that I've seen, but really he just can't score efficiently off the dribble. So their depth isn't, like, elite. They don't have, I mean, I like Mike Scott. I think he gives them, he was honestly one of their better rotation players last year. I, I think Thibault will be fine. He's just got to calm down and, like, shoot the ball more off the cap. He's not going to be this movement shooter. Like I, I saw some quote that Brett Brown compared him to Landry Shamet. I'm not sure if he was talking about like impact, but like they're not even nearly the same kind of player. Like <laughs> Shamet's like a much more advanced off movement shooter. Like it, it's not even close there. Like obviously Thibault's way better on defense as far as team defense and everything. But I don't know. Like maybe the depth takes some time to work in. But I, I, again, I'm not pressing I'm not super concerned about this team right now insofar as it's altered from yes we're eventually going to find out if they can score in the half court against the elite teams they're gonna have to hold games I think in like the 90s against the elites in the playoffs and I I don't see any evidence this is just a different outcome from what we've seen so far in the sample size of the regular season yeah you didn't hear anything I just said did you were you on mute (laughs) okay uh I may or may not have just gone on a massive rant about Portland, but let's move on to Portland. Portland, so right now they're four and seven, and I think the bummer is that they're getting just a ridiculous season so far from Damian Lillard. Like Damian Lillard is averaging 32 and a half points on 50% shooting, 39 from three, 91% from the line. Um, they have not played a particularly difficult strength of schedule. You know, basketball reference has them at 22nd in terms of strength of schedule so far. So like not, uh, not crazy difficult. They've lost games to Brooklyn, uh, Sacramento without De'Aaron Fox. They lost to Golden State uh, earlier this year. It's just been kind of a, kind of a nightmare start for Portland. And I think there are like real reason for alarm bells to start going off here. I agree. And this is probably the team I've seen the least just because they are blacked out here. 
when they play just because I don't have on DirecTV. If you don't have like Comcast, Sportsnet, or whatever, um, they don't have that available there. So, so they black out all of the national televised games and on League Pass outside of TNT. So that's the only time I can really watch them outside of Synergy. And I'm just usually too lazy to go back and watch the Blazers the next day. But in uh, the games that I have seen, again, like Whiteside schematically, there, there was a lot of schematic issues with this team. Like people were like, yes, Whiteside, you know, drop coverage. He's very good. And I agree. Like that's what they do with their bigs. But offensively, that's a problem because, again, you can just trap Dame. He's not going to make decisions on a short roll. That's not his game. Um, and I think sub- well, like the, substituting the bigger problem with Whiteside, the bigger problem with Whiteside is he's a fucking shitty ass screen setter. Like he is a disaster screen setter, and it's just like they're just not getting any space for Dame, and he's a bad playmaker, so you can just trap Dame. And yet again, Dame has still been ridiculous to start this season. Like if that's not a testament to Damian Lillard, I don't know what is. But yeah, like it just has not been a good start uh, for Whiteside at all. I don't think. And I think substituting, you know, their two kind of combo forwards last year, like. Mo Harkless and then Aminu, for example, on the wings. Like those guys mattered as far as taking away three point shots. They were big to that scheme and having that versatility on the wing. And they just don't have that this year. They don't have the same caliber of size. Like they chose to trade that kind of defense for offense because Harkless and Aminu weren't gravity threats in the playoffs. Like teams weren't guarding them and they made that decision. And in the regular season, that might not have been the best move for their team overall. But I think, like, again, CJ has not been efficient this year. Like that, you have to start there. Like he has to be very good and he has not shot the ball well. He's not finished well around the rim that's always been kind of an issue with him as far as at the basket but even on pull-ups and just generally three-point shooting he's got to be better than this they're, they're so heavily reliant on him and dame and dame's held up his end of the bargain you know even like anthony off the bench has been i think he's been pretty good for them like he's i, I watched the hawks game I, I streamed that one and like he was getting to the rim he has you know good one foot pop I, i've been impressed with him athletically he's made shots he's actually been i think a key contributor like losing Zach Collins the starting four hurts their defense because he you know he's mobile he can have that you know weak side rim protector you can at least get more length on the floor to help white side who we've all seen the clips of the white side and the laziness and shit just not defending guys in the post I, I, I don't know like Dame has to really get it into white side to compete on a nightly basis as well so I think this is kind of like uh, like everything bad coming like a perfect storm almost of a different factor some guys like CJ not playing well and then losing some of the schematic um, pluses that you had last year and that and all that's coming together to form this product but you know what's coming along you know what's been great to see this year cole hit me scowl abyssier hive assemble oh god he's been like not <laughs> bad he's been somewhat useful for them this season like he's playing like 15 minutes a night and averaging 5.3 points and four rebounds while shooting 55% from the field. And if you look at what their defensive rating does when he's on the floor, it's like seven points better. Like they've been pretty good defensively when Scal's on the floor. I'm not saying that he's, you know, starting center or anything, but he is sapped up some of those minutes from Zach Collins and been a non-disaster. It hasn't been like a total mess. Yeah, I've not seen enough to really chime in on that. That's great because he's a great kid. I hope he succeeds. And I actually like that swap for I, I would much rather have him than Swan again, obviously. So that was a good move. If, if he's going to give them any kind of positive minutes, that would obviously be huge to their depth. Yeah. Uh, the big thing that they're struggling with is their just depth in general, obviously. Like when a lot of this bench unit comes in, they're just getting worked, basically. Uh, you know. Kent Bazemore has really struggled this year. Simons, I think, has been good on offense, but has really struggled on defense. Um, you know, Anthony Tolliver's minutes have not been particularly great, I don't think, for whatever reason. Like, he's someone that theoretically you would think fits with this team, but he just doesn't. 
Yeah, I mean, you, he, they were hoping for some stretch four ability there. I, I don't know. It's I, I want to see more of them. I, uh, getting Nurkic back later in the year is going to obviously help a lot. He's a much better player than Whiteside is. I, I, again, I just don't know if this team is is very well designed. Like, I don't think they've had Hood in the lineup at least last night. Like, they need his scoring punch on the wing, but can they yeah. defend bigger wings? Like, you start throwing out undersized guard lineups with Hood, who to me is much more of a two guard than he is a three as far as defensively, and you have him next to CJ and Dame, and you have you know, white side that doesn't want to come out of the paint. Like Trey Young went nine of thirty against Portland. That was not because of Portland, in my opinion. Young just was not on that night, and like he got to where he wanted to get all that open area because Whiteside doesn't want to come out. So structurally, that that has worked for Portland in the past again because you saw a similar kind of defense with Nurkic, and that's typically how they want to play: is that kind of over and drop, stay with shooters, and force teams to to finish in that mid-range area. I just don't know if Whiteside's even been good enough um, in those settings. Like he does have to come out at times, and we haven't seen that from him as well. So I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this team. I guess the answer, to speak to the overall point, do you think this team is ultimately a playoff team? Or do, you, do you buy the dip here and say that they're not very good? They're not gonna make the this is gross. Um, uh, I don't like answering this because I don't want to say no, but I think that my answer right now is no. Like, they're only two and a half games behind Minnesota. Like, they can easily make that up in however long. What? Two and a half you know, four months, whatever it is that's left in the season. But I think that the reason I bring up Minnesota is that Minnesota's defense looks a lot more competent under David Vanterpool, who used to be Portland's defensive coordinator and now is in Minnesota. Um, Minnesota now has a middle of the road defense. And when combined with someone like a Carl Towns, like, uh, you know, I guess Andrew Wiggins, at some point we're gonna have to talk about Wiggins because the, the signs are, the signs are there that he might not be a total disaster. Um, he actually might be good. That's my hot take on Andrew Wiggins. Andrew Wiggins might actually be good. <laughs> um, but like you throw him with Towns, you throw him with Covington, you throw him with uh, Josh Koji on defense, for instance. And like that, it's just like kind of a perfect scheme for him. Uh, and in Portland, Portland has not been as good without Vanterpool there. Um, they are now a slightly below average defensive rating team. So, I, uh, I'm worried about Portland and I think I would say right now, man, Utah, Denver, Lakers, Clippers, Houston, that's, that's five teams that like, I feel really good about making the playoffs. So you're talking about like a free for all between Minnesota, Portland, Dallas, San Antonio, maybe Phoenix for three spots, right? Like let's. Let's throw out New Orleans. Let's throw out Memphis. Let's throw out uh, Golden State. And honestly, I'm going to throw out Oklahoma City because I think they're kind of a mess, like having watched them a decent amount this year. Um, and I yep. think at some point they're probably going to make moves. Three for five spots, maybe three maybe three for six or six for three spots if you want to include Sacramento in there. If you think that they can maybe make a leap back, the De'Aaron Fox injury hurts them, though, obviously. I don't know. Answer this for me, please. I, I don't have a strong take. <laughs> I mean, I think Dallas is in. Just I, I buy what they're doing, and Chris Stapps hasn't. He's quietly not been that good this year, and I think he's gonna get. He can only get better, so I think that's gonna help them overall. And Luca can carry an offense. They're the number one offensive team in the league, if I recall correctly. So I, I think Dallas is in. I I'm never gonna bet against the Spurs, so I, I would take the Spurs. And I, honestly, I think I would take the 
the Timberwolves over them right now. But it's really close. Like, I think if they make it, it's going to be more of an eight seed. Whereas I think a lot of people preseason would be like, they're one of the seven teams that are definitely in. And there were some skeptics with Portland coming in. Like, there are some people that were like, yeah. this team is not making the playoffs. And I think some of the injuries, like the Kings with, with Fox and Bagley and whatnot, that kind of faults them down a little bit. But it's going to be close. Like, I don't think they're a lock. I, I don't feel great either way saying they're going to make the playoffs or not. I, of course, if they continue playing like this, no. But can they take some some positive steps? Does CJ start playing better? Maybe that vaults them into like the seventh or eighth seed. Oh man, I think I'm going to say yes. Portland still makes the playoffs, but it's going to be tight. It's going to be real tight. Um, so I, I do. Yeah. I think that they're going to regress positively. Um, I don't think that four and seven with a uh, you know negative one uh, net rating is real. But I do think that they are a little bit worse than what I thought coming into the year. Yeah, that's basically where I'm at. And the fact that Dame has been so ridiculous and they're still losing games, like that just tells you that there are some deeper infrastructure problems on the team, which we already knew, uh, given the personnel. But I think they're even a little bit worse than I thought they'd be. All right, Cole, do you have anything else? Uh, do you have any anything strong? Maybe maybe we'll save pop culture takes for uh, <laughs> our, our uh, do you believe in this person uh, NBA draft podcast that's coming up here next week or this week? Yeah, let's do that. Um, I just want to throw a couple teams. We've already talked about Miami. I do think Miami's real, even though some of the stats, they are very lucky based on, I think, how teams are shooting against them three-point percentage-wise and also how their shots are going in. But we don't need to elaborate on them because we talked, I think, on the last, at least one of the last two podcasts that they are very good. I'm buying them at the full product with Jimmy Butler back in the fold. So I think they're definitely a playoff team. I think they're a Tier 2 playoff team alongside, you know, other guys we've talked about, like with Boston, for example. I think Miami actually might be the third best team in the East. Yeah, I think that you can make case for Toronto there, too. Um, if Pascal Siakam, yes. like that's another guy that we could talk about. Is this for real? Uh, my answer is yes. Pascal Siakam is just a god. Uh, same. Yes, definitely real. So, uh, yeah, I think it's one of those three teams is the third best team in the East. If you put a gun to yep. my head and say made me say which one, hmm, I think I'd probably say Boston right now. But uh, and I think I'd probably say Boston going forward, but Toronto is right there. Yeah, I think that's fair. Honestly, those seem like the teams that have separated themselves a little bit from the pack. And I don't. This is why I don't really care too much about regular season finishing. It's more about the playoffs, how you match up with the best teams. So that's a lot to, be, to still be worked out. I just think Miami deserves some praise, but we've already given it to them. We already talked about Dallas really quick. Um, but do you buy them? Are you are you buying what you've seen on the floor from them holistically as a team and not just Luca? I am gonna say I don't think they will have the best offense in the NBA this year. Um, Cause I think at some point just with the usage that Luca is undertaking right now, uh, he's probably going to slow down at some point, but maybe he's just God. Like maybe he's just the best player in the NBA now. I don't know. Um, or like one of the three best players in the NBA right now. Cause that's what he's playing. Like he is uh, averaging 28 points, 10 rebounds and nine assists a night. Like if he does that, he is legit in the MVP conversation. He's like right now, where would you put Luca in the MVP conversation? Oh, geez. That's a great question. Um, I think he would probably, he kind of has to be top five. It's weird to say that about a second year guy, but what he's done so far and like the usage and like, again, if you watch him as game, you appreciate how much he has to do. Like it's, like yeah. watching the Celtics. It was basically Luca versus Boston. He wasn't getting any help from Chris Stapps. He's not getting that much help as far as off the catch shots. They need to get him easier looks. Said this in the preseason, but you can't just rely on him. Even with the added athleticism, he can get to the rim now much better than he could last year. But he's just the burden is too high. 
where, where do you have him right now as far as MVP? So I would have Giannis ahead of him for sure. Um, yes. I think you can make a case for two. No, I would have Anthony Davis ahead of him too. So I, I would have him three, I think, right now. Yeah, I tend to be conservative. Like I would probably put Kawhi ahead um, just based on what I've seen. Um, I haven't seen a ton of Clippers though, but those three... Yeah, I think I mean, he, like, that's Ka- why I said, Kawhi is a maybe better Siakam? player. Like Kawhi's a better yeah. player, no question. Um, is he having a better season? I don't know. Like it, it, what Luca has done so far has been ridiculous. Like maybe maybe you would give Kawhi the default just because like he's a better player than Luca. I would have Luca ahead of Siakam, but uh, I would have Siakam in the top like six, five, something like that. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone else. Like, I guess James Harden has to be in this discussion, given that he's averaging 37 points a night. <laughs> Good God. And getting to the free throw line literally at will. Guys are ridiculous. But just the fact that we're even having this conversation. Like, I thought it was kind of a hot take to say that Luka was going to be a top 15 player entering the year. Like, I'm not fully on no, board. I don't think that's it. No, he's blown through that. Like, he's definitely going to be a top 15 player this year. That's what I'm saying. I'm not sure if I'm to the point where, like, he's a bona fide top 10 guy yet, even though I get the argument. I just want to see more. It's unfair to him just because, again, having this kind of burden, he has, like, a hardened level burden right now as far as what he does for his team offensively. Uh, The defense has definitely not been good. I've I've watched enough of his games to know, like, it's just it can be better, and I think some of that's usage-based. But the fact that we're even having this conversation about a second-year guy, like, I sometimes think that we don't really contextualize and appreciate things fully when it comes to young prospects and just what luke is doing right now is freaking absurd like this guy is moonwalking to triple doubles like it's like watching against memphis like he didn't even play a lot of that game <laughs> it was just like you knew he was gonna get it cole uh tell the people where they can find your work as usual at the stepbean.com i'm planning on writing like a mapping out the draft piece for 2020 um, we're going to talk about some of this on the next podcast as well so you can tune into that um and read that eventual article and continue to listen to this podcast. Go to the Steppy and go to the athletic. Uh, keep me uh, employed over there. We'll be back uh, later this week with a prospect uh, quote unquote. Uh, I don't know. We, we might call it like a stock watch. We might get real buzzwordy up in here at the game theory podcast. So uh, keep it locked here, <laughs> but until next time we'll talk soon. Bye.